And we are back, uh, and, and I'm excited to be back doing another deep dive segment. Um, and considering everything that's gone on this week, you guys probably already know who we're having on here. Um, but considering everything going on in the world, we got to go to our macroeconomic specialist, Mr. Chase Taylor of Pinecone Macro. Chase, it is always good to have you on, man. Um, and I always find your input valuable, but, uh, little, (laughs) we are in your wheelhouse, aren't we? Yeah, I guess so. We just, just another boring week in the markets, huh? (laughs) I did a I did an interview uh, on a radio station down in Phoenix yesterday, and uh, he had me on. He's like, you know, what's going, what's going on? And Zach's going to try to make sense of things. And I said to him, I go, what, what did something happen? Like, did, did something happen that I'm not aware of? You know, Joe obviously being sarcastic, but um, yeah, this this let, let's start from the ground up, Chase. Um, one of the things that I've been trying to do is look at this situation and and uh, tr- try to try to glean what can be gleaned uh, from it. And one of the things that gives me pause about this whole situation is uh, Putin and uh, his background, the way he goes about doing things, and then just, and and then also culturally looking at it. Um, One of the things I always think about when we're looking into Russia is this is the country where the term Potemkin village was, was coined. Um, And I think that you always need to be looking at what's real and what's theater. Um, is there a part of this that's theater? Is is Do you think Putin is determined just to take over Ukraine? Um, and, you know, feel feel free to pontificate and fill in the blanks because we're all, you know, we're all guessing and trying to look at this whole thing. What do you think his his aim is? And is there something that he's looking for in terms of capitulation that will get him to pull back? And is there, like I said earlier, is there a component of this that's theater, uh, you know, him trying to get leverage to get his way, or is this for real? I think I think the tactical stuff has been, there's been a lot of theater, a lot of, I mean, the U.S. came out and said, you know, they're going to do false flag attacks to create, you know, a reason to justify the invasion. That's exactly what we saw. Um, but as far as the, the aims, I I think it's, I mean, Ukraine has always been sort of a, a really important buffer state, and if it's not if it's not thoroughly controlled by Russia or thoroughly controlled by the West, then it's kind of you know both sides can can kind of live with that. When it's fully controlled by one or the other, then the other side struggles to live with that. So I think it's got to the point where uh, Ukraine was so pro-European that that was that was a problem for and pro-Western that was that was a problem for for Putin and he, he just kind of can't live with having uh, a pro European and, and country talking about joining NATO right on his border. And, and if you look at the map, not that far from, from Moscow and that's, you know, that's all, it's all flat land there. It's e- easy to get across. So, I mean, at, at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And as far as what he's looking for, I think, I think he at least needs to, to go back to being a, a pretty neutral buffer state. Now, whether that, yeah, I'm guessing he, he, is going to want more than that now that he's, you know, taken on all, all this heat and, and actually invaded. So I'm assuming he's going to want the current government to pretty much go away and, and have some sort of, some sort of puppet government or something at least, at least that he has a lot more control over that than he does now. And, and, and he's going to want Ukraine to largely demilitarize at least short term. I mean, granted they've already kind of done that on their own with, with what they've done. 
with with you know all these all these bombings and attacks and everything. But I mean, at the end of the day, that that's it. He wants them to not have teeth, and he wants them to not be so pro-European. Now, how that all shakes out, I have no idea. But so almost kind of emulating uh, uh, structural setup that that existed pre-Berlin Wall coming down, like where you've got the you you know you've got the especially with a lot of these Eastern Bloc com- countries, you know, you had a president. Uh, but the president was just a lackey for for Putin or whoever, you know, well, not Putin at the time, but uh, Gorbachev and Yeltsin at, t- at the time. Right. Like, is that is that kind of what you think he's after kind of recreating that type of setup? It's possible. And I've, and I've seen some speculation that 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 it could be kind of a East Ukraine, West Ukraine sort of outcome where. Oh, wow. Maybe he sort of at least quasi you know, annexes the East and, and lets, you know, the. The, your, the nationalists of, of Ukraine kind of keep the West or something. And I mean, they have kind of a river that divides the country right down the middle. Um, but Kiev's on the, on the, on the West side of, of the river there. So that makes that kind of awkward. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, at the end of the day, I'm not sure. I, and just, it's kind of confusing to see how this is going to play out. Uh, the, the markets obviously freaked out and then they got really happy whenever they heard they were going to talk again or they were open to talking again. It, it just kind of depends on, how these talks go if if they do surrender to to russia and then have these talks i mean it, it's sort of awkward like what you you can't really have talks when whenever one party has a gun pointed at the other but, <laughs> it, but at the end of the day like it the way this all actually works out it might does tend to make right when it comes to outcomes so it probably is how it's going to go down well, one of the things uh that i've been thinking about and and i could be completely off base here but the 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 role that Ukraine plays in that part of the world and really Europe as a whole is is you know it's a breadbasket uh, it's the breadbasket right especially the Crimea I mean that, that's that's correct uh, correct assertion on my part correct I, I can't remember on, on on the Crimea side how much how much the wheat's grown there but but Ukraine is a is a breadbasket of that area is that yes, fair absolutely. to say yeah yeah well, that definitely is do you think that that plays a role in this do you think that he's looking at that component of it, because I mean, if you've got if you've got the breadbasket squared away, they clearly have energy squared away. They're somewhat with Ukraine in the mix. I would look at them and go, they're 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 somewhat insulated from inflationary pressures, uh, at least much more so than a than a country that does not have those natural resources. Do you think the food side of it and the inflation side of it plays a part? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it makes it more attractive you know acquisition for putin if he is if, if the goal is to uh bring on you know like actually do some annexation whether i mean for one they have a lot of people and you, russia needs people they have they have horrific yeah. demographics but also yeah i mean ha- them having you know, like significant wheat production and uh and there's some other, they're in some other kind of important bottlenecked supply chains so i i do think um, that that is is definitely part of it. They they actually do a decent amount of fertilizer, so they are agriculturally significant. And we're in kind of a an uh, interesting time for agriculture. So if he can kind of secure that much more of of a percentage of agricultural you know importance globally, that just that's just more leverage. Yeah. Um, okay. So looking at one of the things that I haven't heard a lot of talk about. Um, and quite honestly, I was doing some reading last night, and it kind of got mentioned as a side note. And I thought, you know what? I need to ask Chase about this. I haven't really thought about it. 
What what is the Chinese role in this situation, if any? Are are they are they involved? They haven't said much. It's been pretty quiet. Is there any thought? Uh, are they sitting back, kind of looking at this as Russia's Taiwan? Are they kind of maybe like this is a trial balloon, watching how they the world responds to Russia's advances in Ukraine, and kind of looking that as a trial balloon to maybe go after Taiwan? Is there is there anything there? And, and and what do you what do you make of the 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 silence coming out of Beijing? Yeah, this is, this this part's really fascinating, and, and just to be clear, I, I don't I don't have a great grasp of it, but what I what I do know is they there was kind of a leaked thing. Uh, online that was sort of like the instructions to their media on what to do and not to do and talk about. And it, it kind of made clear, like, don't say anything bad about Russia because like we need them to have our backs later, uh, which I'm which clearly makes sense. But at the same time, I, they have always been pretty forceful about countries, not uh, uh, like kind of stepping on each other's uh, territorial sovereignty. So from that perspective, I, I doubt they particularly like this. Um, I doubt they like, you know, commodity prices going higher, uh, which has significant impact on, on their economy. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm guessing they're kind of annoyed and, and they made it clear apparently to the U S government from, from what I've read that they didn't think this, that they were going, cause we, we kept asking them apparently like, Hey, like help us out here, please make sure they don't invade. And China was like, Oh, we don't think they're going to, well, now that they have, like, if they really didn't think they were going to and were kind of left in the dark in any way, which I kind of doubt, but if that's the case, then I'm sure they're not happy. But already their state banks are having uh, problems kind of, like, financing the import of, of Russian uh, commodities. So, I mean, it's already impacting them from that perspective. I think we're going to learn a lot, you know, in the next uh, week or two month or two, whatever you want to say about how they actually feel about this through some actions. I mean, they're not going to say, say enough to let us know, but you might be able to see through some, some veiled actions on, on how they really feel about it. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised to hear you say that they were annoyed by it. I thought maybe they, I, I, I just didn't think that Putin would pull a trigger like this unless he talked to Z, G. I, you know, I mean that, I, I mean, I'd be correct saying that that is by far his most important ally, right? Oh yeah. I mean, for sure. Yeah. So I, I can't imagine. Histor- so historically, there's a lot of beef between the two. Right. I, I don't think they. I don't think there's any love lost, but they just they're just in a situation where like they just have to be partners and uh and, and on something like this, you know, it's it's strategic to Putin. He's going to do it. You're not going to stop him, but you know, you're going to ask for you're going to ask for some favors down the road. I would assume. Yeah. It's like it's 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 like that good buddy that you don't trust. Right. <laughs> because right. You, you like to hang out with him, but you won't leave him alone in the room with your wife or your kids. You know, you're, there you go. he's a wild card. Um, Two yeah. scorpions in a bottle. So I've, I've, I've heard Russia and, and, and uh, China describe, and I think it's a, it's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, kind of kind of reminiscent of Germany and China pre-World War II, right? Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so, so now dealing with the impact, um, I, I have been <laughs> – I've been really amused at, at at the media's reporting of this and the knock-on effects. NBC ran a headline the other day that said uh, <clears throat> uh, Russian invasion into the Ukraine uh, uh, sparks inflation, uh, <laughs> pushing uh, fuel price, like literally trying to sit there and go, boy, this inflation is coming hot and heavy now because Russia went into Ukraine. Um, 
and I, I got a good chuckle out of that, obviously. Uh, you know, obviously the inflation train had left. <laughs> left time, but, yeah. yeah. Um, w- but looking at the looking at the inflationary uh, aspects of this, because I do think it's an inflationary event. It, 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 and, and as a side note, it really is fascinating to me the way markets work always has been. It, it seemed like whatever we ran into, right, uh, from 2009 to really right up until COVID, a- any type of black swan event that we had was deflationary, right? It just that, – that was, that was where uh, – you know, that was the tail risk that you were watching out for. We come out of COVID, and it's like everything that happens unexpectedly is inflationary. Um, and, and I, you know, I would make the assertion that, that this invasion or excursion into Ukraine is an inflationary event as well. Um, what kind of impact can this potentially have on the whole natural gas and, and oil side of things? Um, if any, um, and what does this do to, uh, to the, to the oil and gas situation in Europe? Uh, obviously Germany's at the top of that list. Um, as far as concerns, but it's also interesting that through this process, there's been a doubling down on not approving, uh, the new, uh, the, the Nord Stream two pipeline, um, that, that, that project, that Nord Stream two pipeline seems at least from my perspective to be more off the table than at any point over the last six months. You know, I've kind of been looking that as a wild card. Will they bring that back on the table? Will they approve it? Now it seems like it's it's much more of an outside chance. Is that correct? And if not, kind of give us the lay of the land of, of how this will impact that scenario. Yeah, so I, I, it seems to me like the, the knee-jerk consensus is like, this is like super inflationary and it's going to make oil and gas go way higher and food. I. I mean, that just remains to be seen. Like at, at the moment, nobody's sanctioning energy. Nobody's going to stop buying their energy. Uh, in fact, they've actually increased their gas flows to uh, to Europe since this kind of started, which, I mean, obviously makes sense. Um, so at the moment, I mean, you had gas prices spike yesterday big time, over up over 60% at one point in, in Europe. Uh, but the reality was they were getting more gas, so... The, the only way this turns into a nasty situation for oil and gas is if is if this escalates to the point where the West sanctions oil and gas or the West does something else that is so provocative that Russia decides to voluntarily hold oil and gas back from the West. So you have to have a major kind of, uh, you know, upgrade intentions which, for this to actually hit oil or gas in any any meaningful way. The only thing that's really happened so far is it's creating a, a pretty big discount for, my last assault was like 11% or something uh, for Russian oil versus like just kind of Brent, like benchmark. Just because a lot, a lot of people are afraid they're, they're going to get sanctioned and or, you know, have some issues. So they're just like, yeah, we don't want your oil unless you're going to give us a big discount because we're taking on some, some added risk here. Uh, so... I mean, that's like a tangible thing that's happened. So that kind of hurts Russia a little bit on the margin short term because they're going to get less for their oil than everyone else is. Um, but yet, unless you have some major uh, provocation, like they go to try and take the Savalki gap, you know, which is NATO territory. And then it's just kind of like on between them and NATO and, and the, you know, the gloves come off and we're sanctioning Putin and pulling them from Swift and sanctioning oil and gas or they're pulling back oil and gas as a way to retaliate. 
unless it sort of kind of turns into a a total war scenario between between them and the West. I I don't think I don't think, I don't really think this impacts oil and gas in a, in a major way unless something like that happens. Okay, um, so so really not. I mean, it's certainly not going to alleviate uh, gas and oil prices, but you don't really see it impacting it too much out outside of just you know yeah, a, I mean, on an ephemeral it, it basis. Yeah, at the moment, it just doesn't it just doesn't change anything for, for oil and gas because no one no one is going to no one no one at the moment at least is willing to actually sanction you know any of the oil and gas uh, out of Russia because everyone's afraid of the inflationary outcome if they do. Yeah, yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's obviously why he chose now to do it is because he knows uh, the, the thing that would hurt Russia the most is everyone says we don't we're just going to take a break from your oil and gas and and because he knows that he's he waited until no one could say that to him to kind of launch this thing. So where does this where where does this take us right now uh, as far as the inflationary outlook is concerned? Um, where where, do, where where are you seeing it? What are you seeing as far as is indicators and signs and 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 and, and just the inflation scenario in general? Um, where are we where are we at on that? I, there's still a lot of conversation about. Look, I I, I kind of see um, the inflationary setup in two different in, in two different veins. Um, first, I think that you've got real inflation, right? Um, that is kind of a result of, of everything that went on in COVID, the massive amounts of money injected in the system, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm coming from a, a, a position of believing that there is a big aspect of this, that, that, that we've turned the corner, that we're in an inflationary regime. Um, and but there is a component, right? There is a component of this that, that is supply chain disruption. And I kind of feel like I'm stuck between two camps where you've got the Kathy Woods of the world saying it's all supply chain disruption. And this is we're going to get right back to deflation. And then you've got the people that are sitting there and saying it's a Weimar Republic or, or, or the Weimar Republic's on the way. Um, and I'm sitting there saying, OK, I, I think that we're somewhere in between. Right. I, I think that there is part of it, which is supply chain disruption, which I'd expect that to ease over time. And it already is. And I can see it in some of the businesses we're involved in. Um, yet I also think that there's, there is a non-transitory, uh, aspect of this inflation. Um, what are you seeing on the inflation front and do you agree or disagree with, with the way I'm seeing it? Yeah. So I, that's pretty much, that is pretty much how I see it. Um, so going into last year, I, I thought we'd have an inflationary boom in 2021, but even going into last year, I kind of figured 2022 would, would kind of see that largely unwind and that's still where i'm at so i i think we have seen a secular shift in inflation i think i think from now on you know the the highs of inflation are higher and the lows of inflation are higher so that that the floor and the ceiling kind of both shifted up a little bit um but i do think we're about to hit a a cyclical kind of period where inflation is going to go down i think significantly starting in the second quarter uh really it's sort of the the march data that comes out in april and then especially the april data that comes out in may for inflation i expect to start to decelerate significantly i I think it's going to be pretty big and i think it's going to catch a lot of folks off guard uh and i think just in the same way like betting on the the fed and the markets being wrong about inflation last year because we you know i thought it was going to be much higher Uh, to me it's going to be sort of the opposite this year where now the Fed is finally taking it seriously and extrapolating it, and the markets, you know, see nothing but inflation coming. 
at that now it's when I think inflation fades pretty hard and, and everyone gets caught off guard all over again, but in the opposite direction. And a lot of it is like the, the everything, like everything you just said, like the, the biggest reason we had inflation was that the, was, was the fiscal stimulus. I mean, we, we, not only did we do a, an, an, just an unbelievable amount of it, but we just handed it directly to consumers to go buy stuff. So they did, they bought a bunch of stuff and next thing you know, like the ports are jammed and everything. And, and a lot of people are just blaming this on, you know, oh, well, if the supply chains weren't so messed up. But the reality is they, they kind of weren't. Like, if, if you think about almost any product that people have cited as, like, some big supply chain problem, it had more throughput in 2021 than it had in 2019. So you, you look at, like, the Port of Los Angeles. The amount of containers they got through 2021 was, was way way higher than than anything they had done previously so it wasn't that you know they had they had problems at the port they they got way more through it's just that the demand surge was so huge that there was nothing anyone was going to do with you know (laughs) ports or trucks to make that go away uh but you know over time whenever that goods demand kind of slows back down which it already is and it will continue to then that allows the supply chains to catch up which they're already starting to do in a in a significant way uh, so you kind of take away that fiscal side because fiscal is going from a giant tailwind for inflation to kind of a kind of a, a headwind um, as we don't get it anymore. And then on the monetary side, obviously you go from tons of QE and zero zero percent interest rates, and them, I mean they were buying junk bonds last year or whatever, to now them you know not only stopping QE but they're going to do QT and they're going to raise rates at at the moment people think you know six, but by the end of 2022, six rate hikes. Uh, if they do all that, then no inflation way. inflation gets smoked. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's any way they do it. I think it's more like three, three or four. But um, because I think once inflation starts to really uh, dive down uh, the spring and summer, then that lets the Fed kind of back away and, and take a lot more patient approach than they're pretending to right now. Okay, so how do we sit there and how do we how, how do we marry up the two ideas that when when, when you when you talk about inflation dying down, I'm assuming. You are not throwing into the mix lower food prices and a retreat in you know a significant a, a, a significant uh, pullback in energy prices, right? I, I mean, no. It, right? No, but so that's that's the thing. That's, that's where like a lot of people get lost in the sauce with base effects, and they, they kind of forget to look at those base effects. And you know, I, do I think oil or you know energy prices are going to go down this year, or do I think uh, food prices are going to go down now, but if you go back and look at what energy prices did in 2021, you know, we're going to do year over year comp versus that. So, you know, gasoline prices like doubled last year. So do I, are they going to, they have to double again to just kind of stay flat, you know, on that year over year basis. And that's, that's not going to happen. So right, e- right. even, even if they don't, even if they don't go down it, just them slowing down the, the acceleration significantly makes that year over year number just so hard to keep you know, high. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, that's where like, that's why I'm citing that kind of, uh, Mar- March is where inflation started to kind of really pop last year. And then April it, it is when it really jumped and then it just kind of got higher and higher all year. So you come, come May, especially the, the whenever the CPI hits in, in May that that's counting April, it, it, I mean, it has almost no chance of being, you know, seven, eight percent the way the next one can be. Right. Right. Just because of what it, where, what happened last year, and, and 
for, for whatever reason, like a lot of people kind of in, in the markets forget about just that basic math of that. Um, it doesn't mean inflation's you know actually going down or it's low or prices are stopped you know are going down. It's just it's just the math. Yeah, it's, but, it's it, it, you it, think it, the markets it, it, wouldn't it, play it, off that, but they do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's. I mean, this is kind of a sloppy comparison, but it's kind of like saying the VIX doubled, right? Did it well? Did it double coming from thirty, or did it double coming from ten? Right, like right, it's exactly. it, it's it's the the context really matters there. Um, well, and, and you don't think one of the other things that I'm looking at a structural change that I think that could. Um, keep prices higher for significantly longer and I, I I would view as a secular force for higher inflation are the wage increases uh, social security increases um, you don't think that that's gonna keep this ball rolling uh, as far as I mean wage I mean wage increases have you done any work on the wage increase side of it and looked at like what you know because minimum wage on average what's it gone up like 40 percent or something like that yeah I- I don't pay much attention to minimum wage because it's like three percent of workers. But in general, yeah, I mean, wages are super hot, and wages are the, the reason that I think uh, the, the the Fed is acting like they're going to go crazy here. Because I think they're afraid that you could end up in a wage price spiral. And and to be clear, like we're we're at a spot where that's not impossible. So they have to take that really seriously. And I know people think you know if stocks fall twenty thirty percent, the Fed just comes back in, no matter what. And I think that's true unless we – if you entered a wage price spiral, you it, it's so dangerous that the Fed would have to just ignore the stock market and they would have to raise rates aggressively no matter what it did. So that is a that is a just massive threat to, to markets, to the economy, to, I mean, politics, everything. So they have to take that seriously, and I think that's kind of why they want you to believe they might hike seven, eight times, whatever. Um, but I, I don't think – the wages are going to stay like this. I think they're going to go back down. And I think, I think, you know, they'll, again, that they'll be higher than they have been for the last 10 years during this kind of secular, secular stagnation period. Uh, I think we're out of that regime and into a higher demand regime, higher wages regime, all that. Um, but I just don't think, you know, they're going to stick up here at like five plus percent, um, which it was, is definitely inflationary. Um, I, one of the reasons is, according to the numbers, there's like 20 million people out of the workforce, like specifically tied to COVID, whether like, you know, they had to stay home to watch their kids or they were taking care of somebody that was sick or they were sick or they were afraid to go to work. There's like all these measures of people, you know, that were tied to the pandemic. So that, that's a lot of people that you can put back in the workforce uh, and kind of tamp down the, the, the wages. Uh, a lot of people retired and maybe, you know, all of a sudden wages are high enough to kind of tempt them back, especially, you know, if they were all in on crypto or GameStop, they kind of got kind of got to go back to work anyway. Um, so, so I, I think a lot of people are going to come back to the workforce, and I think that will help cool wages back down. Uh, what, what's interesting about that is we've gotten to the point now where like the the jobs data when it comes out, everyone's just looking for a good jobs report, and they just think, oh, that's inflationary. So if you have a lot of jobs, you know, call it if you had an eight hundred thousand dollar job, eight hundred thousand job uh, addition in a report right now. That would make hike bets go up and bond yields go up. Everyone would think, oh, my gosh, that's so inflationary. But in reality, what, what we need to slow inflation is a bunch of people coming back into the workforce to keep that competition for wages, for, you know, for labor down. So I think, I think we can come into a scenario where we have huge job numbers where these people are coming back and the, the market just keeps getting it wrong for two or three months and thinking it's inflationary when, in fact, it's the opposite. So – 
do you where where are you at in terms of where we're like where does this inflationary do you think do you agree with my assertion i i I feel like and it's not going to be static it's not going to be uniformed it's not going to be straight up and to the right it doesn't work that way but i do think that we have turned turned the corner into an inflationary regime um do do you not agree with that then do you not think that this is this that that as soon as this stuff dies down or the smoke clears from the last year and a half that we're going to settle right back into that two to two and a half percent GDP growth range and uh, everything's going to just go back to normal? No, I, I think I think you're looking more like three percent inflation and three percent growth for a while. Some, something around that for, I don't know, call it a decade, uh, which is significantly higher than, than what we got used to from 09 to 2020 ish. Uh, I, I think I mean, for one thing, the, the amount of people entering the labor force is smaller than we're, we're accustomed to for the last what 100 years, really. Uh, so there, there just is less people to do the work. Um, globalization it has its challenges and it's kind of slowing down. The, China had super cheap, enormous labor force, adding to you know gl- global labor for the last 30 years, and that's drying up. Like their their labor force is getting smaller, and they've gotten significant raises. So that's not like gl- global companies can't really play this arbitrage game the way they used to with you know having a billion people just willing to work for nothing coming in. So e- even global competition for, for labor is, is, in my opinion, inflationary. Most people point to demographics and as being deflationary. I think it's inflationary when people, uh, you know, you, you sort of look at what you have to do for older people. Older people consume more, more than I think we give them credit for. Uh, and then younger people have to spend a lot of money to take care of them. I, I, to me, demographics are, are inflationary because you have – a ton of people leaving the labor force and then kind of spending a good bit. That's all inflationary to me. Uh, I think, you know, we've had labor just have zero power for the last 30 years. And I think they're starting to get, get their sea legs back and starting to uh, unionize a little bit more. They're starting to get some uh, pay raises and concessions they didn't used to get because the labor market is tight. Uh, I think that will continue. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the secular shift has, has been made. But I, I just think we're going to go through a, a secular, uh, cyclical kind of rough patch over the next, uh, call it, uh, you know, year or something. Uh, and but what, what will happen is everyone's ex- extrapolating inflation right now. It's just like oh, it's going, it's going to stay really, really high, you know, above five percent for years. Well, when I think when it gets back down on under four percent and it's just kind of fading fast, everyone extrapolates it back the other way and thinks, oh, we're just going to go back to. Two percent inflation, two percent growth, and that's just going to be wrong. So they're, you're just going to catch people extrapolating incorrectly yet again, especially like late this year, fourth quarter, whenever the year-over-year numbers almost have no choice but to be kind of small. Okay, so another question I want to get to, and I'm surprised we haven't talked about it already. But considering what's going on in Ukraine, my guess is that you're not going to see a Fed rate hike in the March meetings. Where, where's your stance on what do you think the Fed's going to do come March? I think they'll hike, and I think it'll be 25 basis points. I, I think you know. A lot you don't think this about. Ukraine situation is going to stay their hand, huh? No, I, they'll hike. Wonder what they're, they're so they, far behind the curve. They just have to. If they if they mm, if they do that, I would think that tech is going to get smashed again. I, I would say that would that would only be if. If the market if the market priced it out and then they did it, th- that would be the case. But I think so. As of now, the market is pricing in one point 
0.26 rate hikes in March. So, <laughs> so you, you got people more than thinking they hike. That's because people think, you know, they might do, there's enough people thinking it's 50 basis points to push it up above one full hike. <laughs> I know. I've seen some prognostications from 50 to 100, and I just laugh when I see that. I go, guys, you're out of your mind if you think they're throwing 50 basis points at this. I just don't see it. Do you? I, I don't, and I haven't. Uh, the, the only way that would be possible to me to have these 50 basis point ones would be if they were super afraid of wages. But I don't, I don't think there's enough there at the moment to think uh, wages are that big of a threat. And, and if you look at like uh, really any measure of inflation past a couple years is, is still pretty low. Like no, no one seems to be afraid of long-term inflation. They're just really afraid of short-term inflation. Uh, so I think if those expectations for you know, past two years started to like really take off, that would probably freak them out. They would think, you know, like this psychology is getting embedded and they have to fight that. But unless that happens or wages seem to just be completely spinning out of control, I just don't see a point in doing 50. Uh, I don't see a point even doing every meeting. I think they could do 25 per quarter ish, like, you know, at least average out at that and they'll be fine. Like once inflation peaks and it's clearly coming down that that's when they'll be, they can allow themselves to kind of go slower than everyone thinks they're going to go right now. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, they, I don't see them going nuts. I, I kind of interpreted that bounce that we had in tech. I thought it was a little oversold uh, to begin with, but I, I kind of attributed that bounce in tech to the invasion into Ukraine and the market saying, okay, the Fed's not going to hike aggressively. You, do you not think that that was a, what, you know, what do you make of what we saw yesterday? A seven seven uh, percent turnaround in the Nasdaq. Yeah, I think that was mostly just when it, whenever people realized like Russia was willing to talk to Ukraine and, and not only was willing to but kind of wanted to. I think that took off all these worst case scenarios that people were, were worried about and thinking like, okay, maybe this can be over quickly and and not and not threaten like oil supplies, you know, that would create a nasty inflationary impulse. Uh, and and my guess too is like a lot of there was a lot of margin calls and crazy positioning issues and. <laughs> Algo's getting stopped out, or or what? Like there was a, there was all kinds of you know structural things going on that probably led to that. So personally, trying really hard to just not take much signal out of out of a lot of the price action of this week because it's been so messy. Well, and I and I think it's kind of part and parcel with really most of the last uh, you know pr- pr- most of the last four or five months, and you could even extend it further. I mean, this this insane price volatility, especially on individual name basis in the market. I mean, this is not new, right? I mean, we've been dealing with this. You know, somebody made a comment the other day like, oh, man, a, a mega cap company swinging that much, and, and, and this isn't healthy. And I'm kind of like, where have you been the last year and a half? Yeah. You know, you got mega cap tech companies trading like penny stocks. I mean, this is not new at all. Um, now, this isn't really an economic question, but just want to throw it out. You get your take. You and I haven't spoken about this. What do you think about the, in my opinion, the bubble you've had in, in these tech stocks, you know, the arc type stuff? Do you think that's over? Do you think that, do you think that's been, it's been taken out in the yard and shot or uh, do you think why not just reaccelerate and do it again? I don't think it's over, but I, I mean, I think, I think a significant portion of the moves probably over though. Um, I, I just, just when I, when I like chart arc, for instance, like to me, like a, a natural level for it to finally stop is around 49 and it's at 66. So then to me, it still has a little ways to go. Um, 
But it, it was down to 58. I mean, it, it, the other day it was yeah. 58, which, which takes her total return from January of 2020 to zero. Yeah. I mean, she, they, they basically unwound all the, all the, the pandemic kind of nonsense that, that happened when, you know, we just, we were all getting checks in the mail and, and uncle Sam gift cards, but yeah. Stimmies, so 20, 20, another 25% from where we are today, roughly is, is kind of where my target is. And, and I, I think obviously they're kind of the most at risk of this. Uh, well, one thing I kind of find interesting is a lot of, a lot of people have been focusing on junk bonds and, and the yields there and thinking like, we're gonna have credit spreads blow out. And so, something interesting to me is we're so used to credit spreads blowing out when things like this happen, like when the economy slows down, it, you, you just, you just get that. But so if you think about like this, the market has like these few generals, those mega cap tech companies that are just such an enormous part of the market now. And if you really think about most of their business models and, and the kind of the way they operate, just like an, an ordinary slowdown, go from, you know, whatever 10% growth back down to 4% growth or 5% growth or whatever. It, it's not, that's not really going to hurt you know, a Google or, or Amazon no. that, that much, you know what I mean? So it, it's kind of an awkward situation. And usually we're, we're so accustomed to oil being a huge part of junk bonds. So whenever oil has problems, junk bonds just kind of have huge problems. But now all of a sudden we're seeing, you know, the whole energy sector just massively delever. They're just paying off debt like crazy because they don't know what else to do with their money. <laughs> um, so, so I could see a situation where the growth, growth and, and, and inflation like really start to come down and junk bonds like sure like they, they they have problems but nothing significant and since we've already priced in seven hikes you know it's so hard for the fed to outdo what's already priced in that it is not crazy to to imagine tech you know bottoming soon i'm personally buying uh kind of short-term interest rates using euro dollar futures which is just you know betting on less less hikes than the market is pricing which you could argue like that transposes right onto to tech, like bu- buying you know some of this long duration stuff. Uh, but at the same time, I think I think rates will go higher than everyone else seems to think. I just think it's going to take way longer. So m- so just for the audience, most people think we're going to have like six seven hikes and it's going to happen in the next year. Well, I think we're going to have, but but they think interest rates peak out at two percent. Well, I think interest rates can peak out at three or four percent, but I also think we only have three or four hikes this year. We just you know, just do this when you much say lower, rates, but it Chase, takes longer. Chase, when you say rates, are you talking about the Fed fund rate or are you talking about the Yeah, yeah, policy rate. Okay, policy yeah. rate. You think we can get to a 3 or 4% Fed funds rate? I do, and that goes back to the fact that I do think this is a, a secular inflationary shift. And, 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 and so you're I talking, think, you're talking 5 to 6% yields on the 10 year then? Well, not necessarily. I mean, we know. Oh, well, as, yeah. Yeah. QE. Exactly. Yeah. So as we know, like sometimes the bond market just doesn't really reflect reality, uh, which it really hasn't for years. And I just, I suspect that can continue. Um, This, and I don't mean to interrupt you, but but while I've still got you here, this is something that I, I just wrote in my notes that I wanted to go over where you're going right now. Um, And I'm sure I'm going to get some, some feedback telling me what an idiot I am and how I don't understand economics and all that kind of stuff. But um, I, 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 I find it amusing when you bring up credit spreads blowing out. To me, it is right in line with people talking about an inverted yield curve. Okay, we have seen this repeatedly over the last 13 years, meaning I think that those signals are worthless 
as far as data goes, right? You show me the yield curve. The yield curve is what the Fed wants it to be, right? Uh, you look at credit spreads. Fed just stepped in and bought $880 billion of corporates, right? They, I just, I, I, during COVID, and, and feel free to disagree with me. I just think that those old mile markers, right? Those old, uh, you know, what do you, what do you call them? Those old indicators like that because of quantitative easing, I think they're completely worthless. Do you, would you agree? I would say I partially agree. So I, you know, so, so for the last year, that is just absolutely true because the fed just, I mean, they didn't have their thumb on the scale. Like they were the scale. Right. Whereas, you know, as they back away and start doing QT, they're, you know, they're not out there buying corporates. They're not buying mortgage backed securities. They're not buying treasuries. That's when I think the signal can creep back, but I still don't think it's perfect because you, I mean, you still have regulatory measures that you can, where you can just go force banks to buy more treasuries or, you know, like there, there's a lot of ways that you can put your thumb on the scale of, of all of this, or you can, you know, they can do operation twist or the opposite of operation twist to kind of move the yield curve the way they want it to go. Uh, so yeah, you're right. I mean, it, on some level, at least the yield curve or spreads or whatever is, is, is kind of what they want it to be. So I, I mean, I definitely see what you mean by that. Um, but I still think like, I, I definitely still use the yield curve and I think the fed stares at the yield, yield curve. And I think if it starts to invert the, that's what it say, say they get three hikes in of the seven we have priced and the, the yield curve inverts. I still think they'll, they're not going to hike four more times unless wages are 6% or something. So, I mean, it still matters, but, but you're definitely right that it's not the signal it was back in the day when no one was touching it. Well, yeah, because there was, I mean, uh, yeah, uh, you, you look at credit markets. I mean, the, the, and, and I guess my attitude is, and I could be proven wrong, but my attitude is, is what they have not interfered with yet. It's only a matter of necessity, meaning if they need to, they will. Um, uh, and I've said this before, but I kind of see this whole scenario with the Fed right now is it, very reminiscent of Colin Powell talking to George W. Uh, before they went into Iraq. You know, the whole you broke it, you own it type deal. Right. Um, and I think that's where the Fed's at. Right. I think that they've created this Frankenstein market um, and they they can't quit being the scale. Right. I, it, it's, I, I guess my whole point is we know how this will end eventually. It'll end bad, just like it, the, these things always do. Um, but I don't think it's going to come through a traditional way. Right. Oh, the yield curves inverting. And now we're going to have a recession and a and a stock market. I just don't see it playing out like that, because if it's that simple, the Fed cannot sit back and watch the market go down 30 to 40 percent. I, I mean, don't I mean, do you disagree with that? No, I, I yeah, in, unless inflation is like some sort of major problem, and really that just comes down to wages. I, I think so. Wa- the wage, wage the wage is, put- is genuinely horrifying for them, and, and they would they would just sit back and let the market get cut in half, no problem, if it was to defend a wage price spiral, because the, the outcome of that is is extremely high inflation, and it's labor taking it's stagflation, share. right? Yeah, absolutely, and it's labor taking huge share away from capital. Which, let's be honest, they're not going to let that happen. <laughs> I mean, there's not. Sure, like I, th- I think politically, the Fed is everyone, out for equality, Chase. Yeah, I think everyone would be happy if that, you know, if inequality lessened. But I, and 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 it is right now. Like the people getting the biggest wage gains are really young people. They're the lowest paid people, the lowest skilled people. So that's great. Like that, I think that's kind of working to undo some inequality with with tight labor market. That's great, and they're fine with that. But if if wages take off, but productivity doesn't, that's just taking money straight out of capital's pockets, putting it in labor's pocket. 
And if that happens, you know, very quickly, then, I mean, everybody's going to lose because inflation's super high. You haven't, you, you, you would have, yeah, no, no growth. Like it just, it would be, that's ugly. And that's where politics gets really weird for everybody because everyone's angry, like it, more so than now. So, uh, yeah, they don't, they're not going to let that happen. And they would, they would let the market get cut in half if it was that. But I think that's a, that's a very low probability event, but one that, you know, you can't ignore. Okay, in the last couple minutes that I've got here, I'd be remiss if we didn't mention food prices uh, this summer. Um, I keep looking at this, you know, the soft commodities. Uh, I keep looking at corn. Um, you're the one that got me going on that one. Uh, corn to me looks recently like it's broken out, and I I'm drooling over this one because this really looks. There are no sure things, <laughs> right? The only sure things in this business are the ones that cost you a ton of money. Um, but uh, to me, it looks like corn is beginning a monster rally. Um, and I just don't really see anything standing in its way. What's your new updated outlook on corn and, and the soft commodities? Yeah, so I'm, you know, I tend to agree. Uh, and so the, the reason I got bullish corn originally was just straight up because of fertilizer prices, which are tied to natural gas prices. But kind of since that happened, it, weather has sort of uh, intervened as well. We could have a situation where weather makes the crop in either North America or South America over the next year uh, significantly lower yield than you know what we're all like kind of expecting going in. So, and if you have on both, top of not, fertilizer shortage. Right. So you can have a situation where fertilizer is so expensive that people use less, which just leads directly to, to lower yields or they plant less acres, obviously is going to be less corn. Um, but, but, and then, yeah, if mother nature kind of intervenes and you have a drought in the U S corn belt or the drought stays or worsens, uh, uh, down in Brazil and Argentina, then, you know, the entire Western hemisphere corn crop is, could be significantly lower than, than expected. And that, that obviously just has, mammoth you know implications so i i I think you could you could definitely end up in a scenario where corn ends up much higher than it is at the moment Uh, let's put it this way what do you think the risks are to that trade i i guess that's kind of my question is i i'm looking at it and kind of scratching my head going i don't really see a risk to this trade i it would be that farmers are willing to just eat a bunch of losses and they still go ahead and plant a ton of corn and they just overpay like crazy for um, all their fertilizer and the supply chain comes through and they're able to get all the fertilizer they want. And then the the, the biggest risk though, like the fertilizer one's sort of baked in, like it, it's going to impact yields, I think. Whereas the weather thing, you just never know. I mean, it, you could just get all the rain you per- need perfectly in, in the U S corn belt and then the South American corn belt. And then, and then, yeah, prices have a problem, Like they'll go back down. You know, we'll get stopped out of our trades and we'll get a small win instead of a giant one. That just uh, doesn't, I just, I don't see farm. I, I, and, and this is anecdotal. I'm not a farmer. I don't have a bunch of farmers that are clients. Um, but what I'm hearing, and I've got some clients that are, um, what I'm hearing is that farmers are discussing openly about how they think yields are going to be lower, how, uh, they're not going to, you know what I mean? Like I, I that, that's what I'm hearing out of these conferences and, and it's mm-hmm. things I'm reading about that they're all kind of resigned to the fact that yields are going to be lower. Have you, have, are you paying attention to that? Yes. So, I mean, what everyone t- tends to go by is USDA's kind of like it's called the WASI report and like no kidding. That's what ag traders stare at for whatever reason, the government's report 
um, is is taken very seriously. Um, and they they're they're predicting you know large acreage and and good yield. I think they just they did just pull the yield back a little bit on their latest report, and the, the corn. Uh, so the corn's already in the ground, I think, in, in South America, and the conditions of that have been just steadily deteriorating. So that's been something that, just like in real time, is, is kind of helping corn prices along. I think they're getting a little rain short term, but I don't know if it'll be enough to, to really um, make, make a difference for the for the crop as a whole. Uh, but but yeah, so as far as what I've heard from from the fertilizer standpoint, is there's a lot of sticker shock. Uh, for the people that are pricing it out for the for for spring, and I mean, some people are going to plant other stuff. They're going to plant beans or something instead because it requires way less ammonia-based uh, or uh, nitrogen-based fertilizers than corn does. So you can get. I, I still think we're going to get some rotation. Uh, talking to farmers and, and people that know farmers, like it's going to be less than I originally thought. The people are just like, no, nah, like farmers are really stubborn. Like if they if it's time to plant corn that's what they plan they'll just do it even if it does cost more but they're they're going to use less fertilizer and they're going to hope you know that they get decent yields out of it so if you get a combo of that kind of they don't put much fertilizer out and weather doesn't cooperate or you get some you know uh, pesticides extremely expensive at the moment too so if you do less of that you know if or or even herbicide you know if you if you have weeds or or pests or something encroach like there's just a lot of different scenarios where I, th- I think the upside risk is, is just bigger than downside risk. Mm. All right, pal. Well, I understand. I know you got to go and I really appreciate you coming on. Anything as a last closing second that we didn't, or, or, or in the last closing seconds here that we didn't cover that you think that we need to keep our eyes on. I, usually I, you know, I have something in mind in that space, but at the moment, no, I think, I think we, I think we kind of nailed it. I just think tell people, Hey, come springtime, look for inflation to start kind of disappointing to the downside. Okay. All righty, pal. Well, thank you so much for ha- uh, coming on again and giving us that update. And um, as always, man, stay in contact and let me know. I, I, it, I, you know, there's a lot of scary things going on, and I'm not, I'm not at all happy about what's going on in Ukraine. Having said that, it really feels nice and good and fun to have macro playing a significant role again, doesn't it? Yeah, that it is, and. and- it's interesting during the times where everyone like disagrees, like there's the, the consensus gets kind of like spread out and, and people don't agree and they start taking, you know, rat, you know, big time different p- positions at the same time. So that, that makes it kind of fun. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It, it is turned into a much funner chessboard, crazier, but much yeah. more fun. Uh, and it's just nice to see a return. I mean, we haven't gotten to where I'd like to see it yet. And I don't think we've gotten back, but, it, but, but, but fundamentals are playing a role again. Um, not as big a one as I would like at the point, but it, it does, there seems to be some order back. So, uh, but anyway, thanks so much for coming on pal and keep us updated. Uh, you're our macro guy, obviously. And, um, we're relying on you to, uh, you know, to, to keep us updated and let us know what's happening out there. All right. We'll do. All right, pal. Thanks again. And thank you guys so much for joining us on this deep dive edition. Hopefully Chase's information helped you out. And um, at least gives us a better perspective of what's going on out there and kind of puts the whole Ukraine scenario into perspective. So anyway, you guys have a great weekend. We've got some other killer interviews uh, on the schedule that are coming up in the next few weeks. So 
Keep an eye on the on the podcast list and don't miss it. Anyway, have a great weekend and we'll see you next week. See you next week. We're, you're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. Opinions expressed in this program are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Clear Creek Financial Management, a registered investment advisor.